And please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Uh, today's scripture reading is Psalm 137. So, that should be here. 137 Psalm. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth sing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. We shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is words of God. Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 137 as we pray together this morning. Father, we have before us a difficult word this morning, words uttered by a man in great pain, and we pray that you would help us to understand this psalm, that you would use it to draw us close to you and to deepen our hope, our trust, and our joy in your Son. And we pray that you would do these things in his name, amen. In the 19th century novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, there's a story about a man named Edmond Dantes who is betrayed by three friends and framed for treason. He spends 14 years in an inhumane prison. For six of those years, he was kept in solitary confinement, and the whole time he is deprived of basic dignity. While in prison, though, he becomes friends with a man who tells him that there is a vast fortune buried on an island and that if Edmund is able to escape someday, the treasure can be his. Edmund does eventually escape, and he discovers that the treasure is real. And with that enormous wealth, he is able to begin a new life, calling himself the Count of Monte Cristo. And he devotes himself to getting revenge on the men who are responsible for his suffering. He believes that the fortune itself is a gift of God's providence, that it's been given to him so that he can exact his vengeance on his enemies. And for the rest of the story, he meticulously plans and then carries out a plan for destroying each one of them. The story has maintained its popularity over the past 150 years, 
not just because it's well-written, but because it draws upon something that all people have in common. We long to see justice come to those who have done wrong. When we read the story of Edmund's downfall, we find ourselves rooting for him and against those who betrayed him. Later in the story, when Edmund catches up with each of these men, we find out that they have profited off of their treachery, that they have gained great wealth and power, and one of them has even married Edmund's beloved fiancée, and they have luxurious lives because they sent Edmund to an unjust life sentence. And reading that, we want to see them fall. Because humanity was made in the image of a just God, and so every one of us longs for justice. Earlier this week, Pastor Bruce gave me a helpful example of this. In 2013, when bombs went off at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, the whole country was shocked that someone would do such a thing. And the city of Boston was heartened and encouraged when President Obama visited and said, make no mistake, we will get to the bottom of this. We will find out who did this. We will find out why they did this. And those responsible will feel the full weight of justice. People in the crowd listening to him that day, regardless of their political affiliation, cheered and applauded because every human being was made with a longing for justice in his heart for wrongs to be righted, and for those who carry out cruel and inhumane or otherwise unjust acts to be brought to account. In the Count of Monte Cristo, it takes just a few hundred pages. In 2013, it took a manhunt and then a trial for the surviving bomber, but there are times when justice seems far off, perhaps like it will never arrive, and the perpetrators of wicked deeds will go unanswered. But God has given us passages of Scripture for those moments in our lives Many of the psalms are classified as psalms of lament. They are expressions of heartache or anguish and petitions for God to bring relief. They deal with suffering that has been brought on for all kinds of different reasons, things like illness or the attacks of enemies or personal failure or other life circumstances, and they play an important role in the life of God's people because they give voice to the emotions of sadness and fear and pain and even anger. The God of Scripture is unique. He does not ignore these feelings that are such a regular part of our lives. In fact, about a third of the book of Psalms deals with lament because this is something that God takes very seriously. When we suffer, when we grieve, the lament Psalms remind us that God is near and that He is listening to our prayers. And when the grief that we experience is beyond our ability to put into words, the lament psalms express what we can't. They are an agonized cry for God to give relief, to rescue, and to bring justice to an unjust world. They are intensely personal and reveal, or perhaps remind us of, our dependence on God's providential care. Psalm 137, though, while it is one of those psalms of lament, also falls into another smaller category called the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms go one step further. They ask that God would not only rescue the author from disaster, but also that he would actively judge those who are responsible. They ask that God's wrath would be poured out. The imprecatory psalms can be hard to read, and Psalm 137 is perhaps the most challenging of them all. It is one of the most infamous passages in the whole Bible. It is sometimes cited by critics of Christianity as a reason to reject the Bible as a whole. 
C.S. Lewis, who I quote from probably more than anyone else in my own teaching and preaching, who I greatly admire, said that the imprecatory psalms have no place in Christian worship or practice. It is very uncomfortable to read these psalms and to consider what difference they make in our lives. But at the risk of offending Lewis, I think he's wrong. Paul, who was an Old Testament scholar himself, says that all Scripture, all of it, every word, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul knew the imprecatory Psalms, and he knew Psalm 137, and he knew that it was useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Jesus himself quotes from the imprecatory Psalms in his own teaching. So the challenge that many of us, including C.S. Lewis, struggle with is how to reconcile the sort of things we see in the imprecatory Psalms, calls for destruction for our enemies with the ethic established by Christ of loving our enemies and pursuing peace and turning the other cheek. So our goal this morning is to try to understand Psalm 137 and then to try to figure out how to apply it to our own lives, and we certainly have our work cut out for us. We don't know who wrote this psalm, but we do know when he wrote it. In verse 1 he says, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. He's writing sometime after the fall of Jerusalem, which he refers to as Zion, the city of God, when many Jewish people were taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. They were forced to move to a new land, where they were servants of their captors. And now, in what should be a place of tranquility and peace, on the banks of a river, he and his people weep instead. They remember Zion. They remember the magnificent city that they once called home, and they remember watching it fall. They remember their temple and what its destruction represented, and they remember the brutality of their enemies. Babylon was famously vicious and feared throughout the ancient world because of their ruthless tactics. And when the walls of Jerusalem did finally fall, an evil force without, or without any earthly comparison poured into the city. These people remember Zion, but there are certainly things that they wish they could forget. But in Babylon, their new home, they are mocked and reminded of the trauma that they have endured. On the willows, he says, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us the songs of Zion. To add insult to what is already a terrible injury, these captives are required to sing songs of joy and victory while they are defeated and exiled. It is humiliating and demoralizing. If the team that lost the World Series or the Super Bowl was required to attend the winning team's victory parade, and they had to stand up in front of everyone and sing with joy as if they had won just so that everyone could laugh at their defeat, that would be awkward, certainly, and unsportsmanlike. But for reasons that the psalmist will mention later in this psalm, this mockery that he and his people are experiencing in Babylon is especially cruel. Judas tormentors are enjoying how miserable these people are. It's a situation in which justice feels far, far off, perhaps like it will never come, like the wicked have prevailed and there is no answer from heaven. 
So the psalmist asks in verse 4, how? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we possibly rejoice when this is our lot in life? Captive in Babylon, mocked and oppressed, traumatized by a past that they wish they could forget, how will they ever find joy here? But despite these circumstances and the apparent hopelessness of the situation, the author does not withdraw from God. Instead, he expresses his commitment to God. In verses 5 and 6, he invokes a curse on himself. He points the power of the imprecatory psalms at himself if he ever forgets Jerusalem. It's not just a commitment to remember his home city, but also to be faithful to the Lord. We know that he's a musician, that he plays the lyre, a stringed instrument of some kind. So the most precious collateral that he has to offer in his commitment to the Lord is the skill of his hands and his ability to sing. And he asks that God would take them both if he ever abandons his roots and embraces Babylon's gods. Some people might wonder why in the world he would ever do that. Why would he ever join the Babylonians, his mortal enemies? But the author probably wrote out his commitment to the Lord in these verses, his commitment to the God of his forefathers, because others who are taken captive with him have already caved to the pressure. In the ancient world, one of the One of the ways that empires typically consolidated power was by requiring people that they conquered to practice the empire's religion. Often this required worship of the king who was considered a god himself, and we see Babylon follow this playbook exactly in the book of Daniel. In chapter 1 of that book, Judah's exiles arrive in Babylon, and the first thing that happens is they get new names. Babylon wants them to forget who they were and to receive new identities. And the new names that are recorded in Daniel chapter 1, all of them are names that honor Babylon's gods. And before long, a law is passed that requires all the people in the land to bow down and worship before the king in a famous story that lands Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace for their refusal to submit. Most, however, did as they were told and bowed down. And based on what they can see, that made perfect sense to them. Even if it was the wrong answer, we can rationalize how they got there. Their God's temple lay in ruin back in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, there seemed to be no end to the king of Babylon's power. So from their point of view, Yahweh appeared defeated, and Babylon's gods were the ones to fear. So the psalmist, writing Psalm 137, is pressed from all sides, from Babylon and from among his own people, to forget Jerusalem and embrace Babylon, to abandon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to worship the gods of his tormentors. But he says, I would rather never sing again than to sing the songs of these false gods. I would rather never feel joy in this life again than to accept false joy from a man who thinks of himself as a god. And because... He is committed to the Lord, and he's reaffirmed that commitment in the middle of this psalm. It is to the Lord he turns for answers in the last three verses of the psalm. He has seen terrible wickedness in his life, and these verses are his call for God to answer them. He's pleading with God to move swiftly, to bring justice and judgment to those who have done wrong. First, to the Edomites. He singles them out in verse 7. He says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, 
the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. The Edomites were longtime rivals with the Israelites from the days of their forefathers. So when they realized that Babylon was going to attack Jerusalem, the Edomites were first in line to join in the attack. They were eager to join in the destruction of Jerusalem. And they were gleeful when they saw it fall. They cheered for it to be utterly demolished down to its foundations. They certainly did not urge restraint from the Babylonian soldiers, but encouraged them in their acts of shocking cruelty. But it is Babylon itself who did the unimaginable. So the author of Psalm 137 reserves the worst of his hatred for Babylon itself. He sets his hopes on the day that God will bring that land the same fury that he had once delivered to Jerusalem. In one of the most uncomfortable passages in the whole Bible, he says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. We hear those words and squirm. We wish they weren't there. How could he say something like that? How could anyone say something like that? If we were nodding along with him up through verse 8, pleading with God to bring justice in this situation, verse 9 stops us in our tracks because now he is no longer asking for justice. He's asking for something else. There are a few things I think we need to consider here. The first is that the author says in verse 8 that Babylon will receive what they inflicted upon Judah. One of the things that he remembers as he sits on this riverbank in the land of his captivity is the day of utter destruction in Jerusalem when even the most innocent in that city did not escape the vicious attack, when parents had to watch their children suffer. It's easy for us to judge the words of this psalmist, to scoff at his uncivilized and hateful prayer. It's easy for us to say that he is just as wicked as his enemies for hoping this. It's easy for us to look down on him from here. But the pain we hear in his words should move us to thank God that we have never been afflicted in this life to the point that something like this seems reasonable. We should thank God for his mercy in protecting us from the sort of heartbreak that we see in Psalm 137. Some interpreters of this passage have explained away the words of verse 9 as some sort of poetic hyperbole, that they are designed to express the depth of the psalmist's anger and pain, but that we should not read these verses or these words literally. And if I'm honest with you this morning, I wish that were the case. I wish that this was just a bit of colorful language designed to get our attention and to help us comprehend the author's grief. But I think that reading of Psalm 137 is unconvincing because the psalmist says explicitly in verse 8 that he wants the Babylonians to suffer the same pain that they inflicted. And then in verse 9, he explains what that is. I think the psalmist is saying exactly what he means. His hope is for Babylon to grieve the loss of their children just like he is. And that leaves us with a difficult question about what to do with this psalm today. 
Some passages of Scripture are easy to apply. A few weeks ago, I preached on Psalm 150, which uses the word praise 12 times in six verses. It is not difficult to understand how to apply that passage. In other passages, we have to think a little bit more carefully. When Jesus casts out a demon or heals a sick sick person, we need to ask what he's revealing about himself in that passage and then understand how that passage comes to bear on our lives. But Psalm 137 is one of the most challenging passages in the whole Bible to apply. And because that's true, we are tempted to pretend that it's not even there. We treat it like it's the 13th floor in a tall building, and we skip right over it. Psalm 137 does not show up on very many bumper stickers or coffee mugs. It does not get covered in many devotional books or preached on in Sunday mornings around the world very often at all. But I am convinced we should not skip over Psalm 137 because there are at least three ways that this difficult chapter comes to bear on our lives. Maybe there are more. I'm sure there are. But this morning, we will focus on three. This psalm shows us a path forward during seasons of life that are not just difficult, but which seem utterly insurmountable. Seasons when the grief and anger that we bear are so heavy that it seems like they will crush us. It is a song for the sorrowful people of this world who turn to the Lord, who find themselves asking, along with the psalmist, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? When we feel like there may never, ever be a reason to rejoice again, this psalm is here to help us. Because at every turn, it points us toward Christ and the hope of the gospel. First, this psalm reminds us to bring our grief to the Lord. Most of us will never know the depth of pain that this psalmist experienced. But all of us know what it is to grieve and to suffer injustice. They are a part of life in varying degrees for every one of us. And there is a temptation for all of us when facing great suffering and heartache to withdraw from God. Pressed down by the weight of grief, we may think that his love for us is small or that his providence is bitter. Faced with some tragedy and injustice, some people ask, how could a loving God let this happen? And without a satisfying answer, they wonder if God really is as loving as people say or if he is even out there at all. The belief that the universe is just atoms bumping into each other and that everything that happens is just the product of random chance seems, at first, to, to, to provide us some comfort because it spares us the awkwardness and the difficulty of having to ask why God would allow or even ordain the hard things that he does. But that is a frightening prospect if we think about it for very long. Because if the universe is just atoms bumping into each other, then we have nowhere to go with our sorrow and nowhere to go for an answer. No one to appeal to when we condemn injustice. Because what ground do we have to say that something is bad and that something else would be better? If there is nothing but random chance and matter, there is no justice for us to seek. But if the God of Scripture invites us to come to Him with our grief, to look to Him for justice, we do have a place to turn. He does not dismiss or diminish our sorrow. He does not deny the weight of it. Instead, He invites us to bring it to Him, to ask the hard questions that are in our hearts, 
to wrestle with the bitterness of His providence, and ultimately to see beyond the trial that we're facing now to the glory that awaits on the other side. When Peter wrote to Christians who were suffering persecution in the first century, he did not gloss over how bad things were. He acknowledges that these early church Christians are enduring what he calls fiery trials. But even though things were really bad, he comforts them with a real and meaningful and lasting comfort by telling them to cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. He is not dispassionate or far off. When we are being crushed under the weight of grief that is too heavy to carry, God invites us to lay our burden on his shoulders, to cast our anxieties on him. He is strong enough to carry them and to carry us through whatever heartbreak we endure. And the lament psalms show us how to do this, how to express our grief, to pray for rescue, and to trust that a better day is coming. The writer of Psalm 137 knew that turning away from God in the midst of grief was a path that would only lead to more sorrow. It would have left him utterly alone, without the hope that the wickedness of this world would one day be answered by a just and sovereign judge. But that turning toward God, hope remained and sustained the psalmist in his captivity. Secondly, this psalm reminds us to bring our search for vengeance to the Lord. Because this passage doesn't just deal with sorrow. It acknowledges that this grief came at the hands of a merciless attacker. And in the face of that crime, the author wants justice. We can all understand that in large situations and small. When a car runs a red light and puts others in danger, we silently hope that there is a police car right there who will flip on his lights. After the end of World War II... The Allies assembled in Germany to hold a trial for the surviving leadership of the Nazi party that had committed war crimes across Europe and were responsible for the deaths of millions and millions. Everyone in the world knew that they were guilty, but a trial was convened anyway. The evidence for their guilt was scattered all across the entire continent, so you would wonder, why do we need to go through this? But the world needed to see that these men were held to account for their crimes. We crave it. We long to see justice done. And Scripture does call God's people to seek justice and to strive to make the world a more just place. In Micah 6.8, God says that there are three things that He expects of His people, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. We are not supposed to ignore wrongs when we see them or remain neutral in the face of injustice. We are called to do what we can to make the world a more just place, but when personal hurt or grief motivates our search for justice, we get dangerously close to contributing to a problem that we have been called to help solve. Because there is a point when a search for justice turns into a search for vengeance. And God's people are called to be very careful about not crossing that line. The example provided for us in Psalm 137 reminds us that vengeance belongs to God himself. Something that Paul explains in the book of Romans. The writer of this psalm has, uh, has suffered great harm and cruelty. He has witnessed the abuse of the innocent, his beloved children, and he is full of righteous anger at the enemies who have carried out these atrocities. He is so angry that he makes a preposterous and horrifying, horrifying claim that those who repay his enemies with the very same cruelty 
will be blessed. But at no point does the writer of Psalm 137 take that search for vengeance into his own hands. He doesn't need to because he knows that God is just. Jesus had the very same trust. In 1 Peter, we read that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to his Father who judges justly. God will answer the wickedness of this world, and he causes people to trust that that is true. But having that kind of restraint is easier said than done. Because the deeper our pain and anger, the more difficult it is to give up control of how to answer our enemies. It's easy to let go of trivial offenses, but as the stakes get higher, the harder and harder it is for us. There are some grudges that we struggle with for years and years, maybe decades, that we struggle to let go of them. Imagine the sort of anger it would take for someone to say what the writer of Psalm 137 says here. This is a deep anger that will probably be with him for all of his earthly days. That is the kind of anger that we do not easily let go of. And even though he is still angry after the psalm ends, he has relinquished control of what comes next to God. And that each, that is one of the most important lessons that this passage has to teach us, that we can trust God with what comes next, that he will do what is right, that he will answer every wrong no matter what. Even if it takes longer than our lifetime to do it, he will be just. One scholar reflecting on this principle says, it is an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing that they will be taken seriously. But the psalmist knows that God will take this seriously, so he is able to let go of what comes next. But that still leaves us with a difficult question about what to do with verse 9. If this psalm ended with verse 8, our job would be done. The application would be, bring your grief to God and trust Him with what to do with it. But the psalmist didn't stop there. He kept going to a place we cannot follow. Even though we sympathize with his pain and we understand his desire for Babylon to be brought to justice, the idea that innocent children would be made to suffer for sin that they did not commit is unconscionable. It is the same sort of ungodly wickedness that the Babylonians themselves perpetrated in Judah and throughout the ancient Near East. It is the reason that God's unrelenting fury would eventually come to Babylon itself. But from this place of utter sorrow and contempt that the psalmist is in, this, verse 9, is the best possible outcome. For the psalmist, there is no greater hope than that his enemies would be made to suffer as he himself has suffered that they would feel the unimaginable pain that he has felt, the sorrow of mourning for your children. But the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that there is a better way than this, a better hope and a more satisfying answer to such pain. This psalm helps lead us to set our hope on a better answer. Psalm 137, in all of its ugliness, it should make us uncomfortable. It should move us to tears at the wickedness of the world around us because we live in a world where terror and violence and injustice are not exceptional. I barely look up when I hear on the news about another horrible thing that's happened because it happens every day. And in the gospel, God has set in motion a plan of redemption that will fully and finally answer every single one of them. 
It is a better hope than wishing that our enemies would suffer, that they would weep as we have wept and grieve as we have grieved. It is a better promise for something better than retribution. It is the end of evil itself. And it comes not through vengeance, but the willingness of Christ, God's Son, to endure the greatest injustice that the world has ever known. Christ, who knew no sin, who was singularly worthy of honor in this world, was accused convicted, and executed by a world that was rotten to the core, not because they took his life from them, from him, but because he was willing to give it, to change places with the wicked, to shed his blood so that theirs could be spared. Christ's victory over wickedness comes not by perpetuating a cycle of violence, but by interrupting it with his own life, not by exacting vengeance on enemies, but by dying for them. So that now, every wicked deed ever carried out will either be answered by heavenly wrath or covered by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So that now, those who cling to him by faith are rescued, not with a sword, but by one who carried a cross to the place where he would be hung upon it. The book of Revelation tells the story of Christ's final victory. When he reigns in glory and he casts the forces of evil, the whole institution of evil, into everlasting judgment. And in that glorious scene in the book of Revelation, the representative of all evil in the world is called Babylon. And when Babylon falls, a heavenly voice declares that mighty is the Lord who has judged her. He will not overlook evil. He will answer it decisively. And he will deliver his people into a world without wickedness. The best world that the writer of Psalm 137 could imagine is one where his tormentors are made to suffer and grieve. But in Christ, we have a better hope than that. There's a better world than that one. The promise of a world without affliction, without injustice, without death, without violence, and without sorrow. Where every evil deed has been answered by a God that the multitudes in heaven praise by saying that salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Psalm 137 should make us uncomfortable. It should make us feel like this place, where sorrow is not an exception, it is not exceptional, it is regular, it should make us realize that this place is not our home. It should make us long for the day when all wrongs will be righted, when wickedness will be decisively answered, and when the work of redemption, begun in the death of God's Son, is consummated, and we rejoice alongside all of those who remember what it was like to cry and long for vengeance, but now cannot imagine a world where you would need to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you today, the holy and heavenly judge to whom we will one day give account. We cry out for the justice that we long for, but we know that we also fall short, having participated in the brokenness of this world every day of our lives. So we cling to your Son, in whose name we are counted righteous. Train us, Lord, to trust you, to bring you our griefs, our longing for justice, and to hold fast to the promise of the gospel. Comfort us, Lord, in affliction by reminding us that you are just and merciful. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.